Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. G, and sitting beside me in pink, Hello. looking amazing. Gotta think pink, it's Dr. Red. Join us as we trace the history of Rome from the founding of the city. Oh boy, and it's good to be back into this narrative because we are in the middle of a really complicated year. Yeah, it's been a long time that we've been spending <laughs> on this particular year. That's because so much weird stuff keeps happening. <laughs> it is circa 460 BCE. Yes. Uh, our consuls are Publius Valerius Publicola and Gaius Claudius Inregulensis Sabinus. <laughs> we should say, Dr. G, they were. They were. <laughs> One of them has unfortunately just died. Yeah, so last time we were looking at the narrative, things got pretty hectic in that there was something going on, like an invasion or an uprising or something odd. I'm not really sure what. I don't think the oh, Romans really knew what was going on either. Look, I think it, it was a huge problem for the Romans yeah. because uh, the the forces had come into Rome, mm. um, led by Hedonius, yeah. and basically had claimed the capital by sneaking into a back gate that, for religious purposes, was always kept open. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious. Why even have get walls, guys? Like, what? <laughs> it's good to have a gate, particularly yeah. when you keep open. It's like an invitation. Um, and the Romans had really sort of rallied um, and defended and attacked and been repulsed and eventually, like, sort of besieged their own fortress in order to win back the capital. But it had taken some convincing because not everybody was certain of what was happening. The patricians seemed to think that maybe the plebeians were behind this and the plebeians were being talked into by the tribunes that maybe the patricians were behind this. So it took a while to get there. But get there they did. Get there they did. But <laughs> yeah. the price that they did pay is that one of the consuls unfortunately perished. Yes, in the So mm. Publius Valerius Publicola, we say farewell and noble sacrifice, much weirdest to you. Indeed. So the problem is that he was the one that the plebeians liked. Ah, yes. You know, he's got that Publicola family name. He's got that historic connection of being beloved by the populace. But now he's dead, which means that we're left with one Gaius consul, Gaius Claudius. And we know, if we know anything about Claudius, Dr. G, it's that they ain't very nice to the people. They are highly conservative. Yeah. And just to sort of kick everything uh, into perspective, uh, the tribunes of this year also take the opportunity, now that the fighting has died down and mm. the capital has been reclaimed, to push forward uh, with the call for the law about the laws. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is trying to this this is the plebeian effort to try and get something written down <laughs> about the way that things work in Rome, which the patricians have been staunchly resisting. They have been, yeah. and apparently Publicola was kind of on their side and well, had given them some assurances that it would get through. He he basically said, "Look, we will definitely talk about it, but once we've finished, you know, with the invasion." <laughs> That's enough for the tribunes. They're kind of yeah. like, you said you'd talk about it. Yeah. He's dead, so we will now speak on his behalf. Yeah. We need to talk about it. Now, of course, 
we've got a sole consul healer, and that's not an acceptable situation. So Gaius Claudius exploits the fact that this is not an acceptable situation to put them off. He's like, look, no business can be contracted right now. I need to have a colleague before anything gets sorted. Now, there is one man, Dr. G, that the patricians would love to see as the colleague of a conservative plebeian-hating Claudius more than anyone, and that, of course, is our old friend, Cincinnatus. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the guy that's the father of the arch-douche known as Kaiser. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing quite like to cement your elite patrician status than to have the tribunes drive your son into exile for being (laughs) terrible to the plebeians. Yeah, if he didn't hate them before, he certainly does now. On top of that, he actually has three more sons apart from Kaiser. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm not aware of any of these other children. Goodness me, that's not what Dionysius is interested in at all. it's, It's more, I think, the fact that, you know... He's got, he's got like a family backing here. You know, they're all men, which is what all we care about, of course, at this point in time. So, you know. I, I'm disappointed, but yeah. I... <laughs> yeah, well, you're not the only one. The Philippines are understandably horrified that this happens. Well, according to Dionysius, yeah. uh, Claudius, the, the sole consul remaining, um, does try to put off the election for quite some time as well with some obfuscation. Interesting, um, okay. Performs some lustrations for the city offers some sacrifices uh, and thanksgivings to the gods Mm. uh, for retaining the capital Mm. and also puts on some games and shows to keep everybody entertained. Ah, look, classic Claudian move as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I mean, of course he's trying to string out his time as a loner as long as possible, but, you know, eventually (laughs) the position must be filled. (laughs) It must be filled. And so they get together and... Uh, the Senate basically is are the arbiters of kind of who gets nominated for this thing. Mm. They get together and they basically push forward the name of Cincinnatus. Yeah. Cincinnatus is not in the city, um, not around for this nomination, gets put forward anyway. And because of the way that the Comitia Centuriata operates, mm. where the most wealthy and powerful centuries vote first, it's kind of... Uh, a done deal very early on in the voting sequence yeah. that Cincinnatus is voted in as the replacement or what we call the Suffet Consul for 460. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Are you trying to tell me that we're dealing with a government where wealthy elites have pretty much got a system that means that they get to hang on to power and get their buddies elected? I know. What? <laughs> it's highly unusual and certainly not something that we see very frequently in history, uh, as you and I both know. Yeah. And yet here we are. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think this might be one of the early instances of the Suffolk consulship. Yeah, the Suffolk consulship. Sorry. <laughs> I really don't like the name, the Suffolk consulship. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Fair enough. Point one. <laughs> um, but essentially, what we see with the consulship is this is kind of the Romans' way of dating things that happen. You know, they use the name of the guys that are in charge to usually, like, you know, date laws and that kind of stuff. And, and that's why we have this system where rather than tell you just a number, we date things by the names of the people. This was, yeah, yeah, a very common way of uh, dating 
in the ancient world. And for the Romans, this is a pretty stock standard way of doing it. And one of the reasons why the consulship itself becomes so prestigious, because Mm. you lend your name to the entire year. Mm. But that's only in the case of the first two consuls. If you Mm. have an instance where a consul dies, like we've had Publicula unfortunately die. Yeah. Um, Cincinnatus is not going to give his name to the year at this point. What a shame. He seems like such a stand-up guy. <laughs> well, maybe he is, but he doesn't yeah. even know that he's been made consul. And, <laughs> and this is great for Dionysius of Halicarnassus' narrative because it means that he gets to push forward um, this beautiful sort of narrative sequence where Cincinnatus is represented as the quintessential elite Roman farmer uh, tied to the land. Of course. Yeah, it's a hot day and Cincinnatus is out plowing the fields himself. Of course he is. Um, presumably not literally, but maybe like working with the oxen. Yeah. Um, but they come, they send out a delegation to pick up Cincinnatus and mm. they take all of the insignia of the consulship with them. Yeah. You know, like we've got a troop out with the lictors, got to bring the chair. Uh, the we, we, yeah, yeah, we need a special turga for this man. Yeah. They find him shirtless, just wearing a loincloth, <laughs> sweating in the hot sun, tilling his own field. And what he, a silver fox, they say. <laughs> and he kind of gazes at them bemusedly because <laughs> uh, they sort of approach as a delegation. And one of the delegation comes forward and, like, to give him the hint, they're like, go inside and, and put on some clothes. <laughs> and <laughs> This is not how you want this moment to go down. <laughs> so he does, uh, yeah. comes back out, and he's like, what's going on? They're like, these are all for you. Congratulations, you're the consul. Mm. And he is not happy. Interesting. Really I mean, not happy. It's interesting that you go into this because, of course, this is one of the things that is remembered about Cincinnatus, that he is this uh, dutiful Roman who gives his time uh, to the state when needed, but otherwise tends to his own humble business, you know, tending to his farm. Yeah, yeah so this is seen as one of these like amazing expressions of weirtus in another way. I mean, there's military weirtus, but yeah. then there's the manliness that comes from being a proper Roman citizen. Totally, yeah. Working your own land, mm. even though you're a patrician. Yeah. Um, the humble labour and the fruits of that labour. Well, yeah, I mean, the Romans always have this, well, not always, probably because our sources are written so late. It seems like they always have this idea that they, they do admire wealth and show and display, but they also like a man who's tough and rugged. I mean, really, what I mean, they want is all. what... I was going to say, really what they want is what the modern woman is looking for. They want the whole package, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and fair yeah. enough. Yeah. You know, he's... He's worked hard and his first concern is apparently to be like, my field is going to go unsown now. Yeah. There's a danger that my family is going to go hungry this year. See, this is interesting to me because I feel like the Pavines and he have something in common now. (laughs) (laughs) You would think so. And yet just you wait. Yeah. He kisses his wife goodbye. Mm. He returns with the delegation to Rome. And that seems like the done deal. We now have two consuls again. And that's also the kind of moment, BT dubs, that people like George Washington went nuts for as well. (laughs) Hello, America. Yeah, Yeah. he's a very famous figure for the American founding fathers because of this combination of like attachment to the land and the unwillingness to rule, which seems to imply the capacity to rule well. Exactly. Yeah, he's not after it for his ego. He's just doing his duty. Yeah. Yeah, so... Okay, well, in my account, none of this happens. (laughs) Livy, as we know, is into concision. Not about setting the scene. Um, So really, I go straight to 
Cincinnatus being in the position. And much like we've kind of seen before in, in some of our recent uh, episodes, he not only takes the opportunity to start telling all the people off for, you know, being a disappointment to him, etc., etc., but he also tells the Senate off because, of course, they're meant to be the ones sort of stopping the plebeians from getting out of line and dealing with the tribunes and so on and so forth. And obviously they haven't been doing a great job because the tribunes are still being meddlesome, just like those meddlesome teenagers in Scooby-Doo. This is kind of interesting. So the Senate have managed to get a man in charge who is now going to be looking upon them disapprovingly. Well, we've we've seen this kind of message before, haven't we? That it's because they let their guard down or something. They, They let something slip, which allowed this whole position of the tribune of the plebs to be invented in the first place. Now, I mean, this is one of those things where the senators might be feeling a little hard done by because most of them probably weren't responsible for that personally. It did happen quite a while ago now, Cincinnatus. Mm. <laughs> but they are no less responsible as a body as a whole. Exactly. <laughs> and and the tribunes have been steadily getting more active and troublesome in, in recent years, you know, as we have seen. Yeah, and certainly yeah. Cincinnatus makes it pretty clear from the outset that things are it's his way or the highway now that he is the consul. Which is what we expect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he gets in there and... He sees what's happening with the tribunes uh, sort of rallying uh, the people for this call for the law about the law. And he's not happy about this because no. the tribunes are also suggesting that they're going to um, advise the people to not join the levy. Um, yes, which is a classic tribune of the plebs move. Classic move. move. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Cincinnati decides to innovate in this respect and he calls his own assembly of the populace. And he lets them know that uh, they've all sworn a military oath Mm. and they know it. And they swore to follow the consuls into any war. And he is now the consul. So they've got no real option. And he doesn't really mind if they disagree with their oaths. That's fine. What he's going to do is just send them on a campaign that they don't want to go on against their will and force them to camp in the winter. Mm. outside of Rome. That doesn't sound like fun. No. Of course, the slight catch, Dr. G, <laughs> and this is, what, uh, this is what the comeback is going to be, is that it wasn't to Cincinnatus that they made this oath. Like, he wasn't the consul when they made this agreement. It was to Publicola, who is now dead. And I feel like this is the loophole. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's its not a loophole that, that they seem to pick up on. Oh, they, okay. They, maybe on they your seem to, yeah. In, yeah. in Dionysius' account, they seem to recognize that the oath that they've sworn is to the consulship, to mm. the position rather than to the individual that holds it. Yeah, yeah. So Cincinnatus does some flashy stuff by like, you know, making good on his threats. He's like, he orders the standards to be taken out of the temples. He's like, put them on display. Yeah. We're definitely getting an army together. Yeah. He reminds everybody about what happens to those who disobey the law um, mm. of like breaking an oath. Which is not, not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he's like, and I will expect you to pass winter in the field. And he's like, so unless you step down off this hobby horse about this law about the laws, Mm. if you agree to not be disruptive about this thing, I won't send you on this winter campaign. That's interesting. It does play out a little differently in my account. Um, He definitely, you know, goes to town with the rhetorical fireworks, as you would expect. Uh, And I just want to highlight this because 
I want to be able to say that he said that one of these tribunes that's been causing so much trouble, Aulus Virginius, he says that he's basically just as bad as Appius Hodonius. Oh, wow. That's yeah. big. Yeah, and Appius Hodonius, listeners, just in case you don't remember, is the guy that led the whole invasion. Whatever, of the capital. Whatever that's been was. defeated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's all, he also tries to guilt the Roman people into feeling really terrible that the people that took proper first action when Rome was seriously in the brink of pretty bad position was Tusculum and not the actual citizens themselves. Um, because Tusculum, we might recall, rushed to the aid of Rome because they saw something suspicious on the river, <laughs> namely lots of armed men. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Where could they be going? Yeah. Um, and that's when he starts bringing up this idea that, look, we're going on campaign against the Volscians and the Aquians. It'll be good for you, that sort of thing. And it's at this point in time that the, that the Tribune starts saying, yeah, right, buddy, but we're going to tell the people not to join, the, you know, not to respond to the levy. And they say exactly what I pointed out, that there is a loophole, that they've made their oath to Valerius and that Cincinnatus had been just another private citizen when that had taken place. And therefore, who is he? to you know oh call them this up is like this. very interesting yeah. our sources really disagree on this point don't agree, they yeah. yeah like Dionysius' narrative really just sort of kind of flows and Cincinnatus's rhetorical force is not questioned at all well i mean it's not so much the people i mean the people themselves definitely feel bound by the oath they're like eh, okay tribunes whatever but like we still have to go <laughs> um the people definitely are still feeling that obligation but I just, I just like the fact that the tribunes try this tactic out and once they realize that the people aren't really going to pay attention to them they try and put off leaving uh, as long as po- they possibly can um, you know for obvious reasons they're trying to cause mayhem <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is really quite interesting because I wonder if part of the reason why we get this discrepancy in our narratives at the moment mm. is that it seems pretty clear to me that Dionysius of Halicarnassus is really pro Cincinnatus. Mm. Um, he's getting a really nice write up. He's really like foreshadowed as like this sort of like quasi proto aristocratic, essential virtuous Roman figure. Sure. And then he comes out and he does this amazing sort of rhetorical strategy with the people to convince them to do exactly what he wants yeah yeah um and to not listen to the tribunes and it goes perfectly well in this version of the narrative yeah and then we get into a section where he starts being highly complimentary so he talks about the restoration of the law courts okay Mm. (laughs) apparently this hasn't happened for a while did we know that this wasn't happening no apparently it hasn't been Apparently not happening for a while, and now it's happening again. (laughs) But not only that, this seems to be a period of time where the consuls themselves are part of the magistracies that accept the court of law and hold court of law. That makes sense. It's so early. Yeah, Yeah, so people are coming in to see Cincinnatus to get their case heard, Mm. and he's judging uh, case after case. And he's now lauded as a model of fairness and justice. Mm. And... Dionysius says he made the government seem so truly an aristocracy. Yeah, that seems like a bit oh. of fangirling going on Ooh. there. Oh, <laughs> you just you're just saving the republic right now. What is that tingling sensation? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean Livy is generally pretty pro-patrician. Don't get me wrong, 
but I feel like he is drumming up the tension in this conflict of the orders stuff as much as he possibly can because essentially what is actually happening in my account is the same as what's happening in your account but it's just the way people are going about it the road they're taking is slightly bumpier which to actually kind of makes sense to me, to be honest. I, I don't see why the Tribunes would just bow down now, especially for someone like Cincinnatus, who's the father of the guy they essentially drove out of the city. Oh, well, um, it's not surprising that Cincinnatus doesn't have anything nice to say about them. No. But these Tribunes just keep coming back. I mean, this is like their second year in the role. Yeah, yeah. Um, it feels so like longer. But... It feels like longer, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. we've just done a lot of episodes. Yeah. So we've got Aulus Virginius, Marcus... Volsius Victor. Mm-hmm. These are the two uh, sort of ringleaders of the Tribune of the Plebs right now. Yeah. Um, they both spearheaded the exile of Kaizo, yeah. um, Cincinnatus' son, mm. and they're still hanging around, and now Cincinnatus Sr. is their consul. Yeah. Uh, so things are really ripe for tension in the city yeah. between these like clashing sort of matrices. Yeah, definitely. And Something kind of interesting happens in my account, which is a little, it's a little complicated. (laughs) Ooh, I like complication. Yeah. So the Tribunes are trying to draw things out and, you know, make sure that the plebeians aren't rushing to follow orders as far as this levy is concerned or fight the Volskians, whatever. So the, essentially the augurs, um, who are this particular priesthood in Rome, they're ordered to go to Lake Regulus and they're ordered to carry out the auspices. So this is like a, a ritual which is fairly common where, you know, they're checking that everything's okay. Yeah, you've got to go and look at some birds, just make sure everything's all right. Yeah, um, because what they want to do is bring a matter before the people. And they... S- Essentially, they seem to be trying to reinstate the position of consul, like the preeminence of the position of consul over the tribunes, as in putting the tribunes back into place to kind of try and undo as much as they can of what the tribunes have been trying to do. the patricians have not been happy with just how much leverage the tribunes have gained. No, I mean, that's that's very clear that Cincinnatus is unhappy about this whole position and wishes it didn't exist. Um, So he, he wants things that have being enacted at Rome to be undone. And the reason why I think they're doing it in this particular location is that apparently, apparently, if they're at a certain distance from the city, it's consular authority. Oh, okay. You know, like they're trying to sort of literally get out of the comfort zone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is really interesting. I really, I'm curious about this. I'm like, I wonder what they think is going to happen. Well, I mean, it's quite clear that Cincinnatus is is totally against, not just the, these particular tribunes, although obviously he'd have a personal grudge against them because there have been personal things between their families. But it's the whole office of tribune and, and, and the things that they've tried to accomplish for the people that he's really gunning for, I think. Um then Cincinnatus says, look, there is like things are so bad in Rome right now that forget about consular elections. This situation calls for more than just a couple of consuls. Oh, yes. oh wow. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm about to drop the D word. <laughs> we need a dictator. 
<laughs> we need a dictator. Yeah, exactly. Um, do we? Oh, goodness. Apparently we do. Because if you had a dictator, then people can't make any appeal against any measures. Oh, I see. How yeah. convenient. Okay, mm. well, I think this is where our narratives truly diverge because I do have a dictatorship coming up in the in the near future, but it's not in this year. Oh, no, I'm not saying he is a dictator. He's just saying we need a dictator. Oh, okay. He's putting it on the shopping list. Okay. <laughs> and he's putting, he's planting the seed, Dr. G. All right. Yeah. yeah. We could grow a small one at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we water it correctly, it'll yeah. be ready. Exactly. Okay, that's very interesting. I know, I know. Um, so, in terms of like where Dionysius is heading with his narrative mm. for this, uh, he talks about how because of Cincinnatus's sort of really quite so- severe approach to the consulship, sure. it's sort of like no holds barred, it's my way or get out. Yeah. Um, Actually, this garners the respect of the population generally. Mm. Um, Somebody is really taking charge. Mm. And even more so, he gains the um, respect of the Senate, which he already had, but it's sort of elevated at the point at which it gets to the end of the year because Mm. he's only holding it for a short amount of time. Sure, yeah. And they want him to then become uh, consul for the next year. Okay. Yeah. I thought like Con- it was leading into something into my account. <laughs> yeah, like consul. So this would be the consul ordinaris, which is the one who names the year. The ordinary consul. <laughs> yeah, the ordinary consul. Um, the fancy one who ends up on the fasti. Mm. Cincinnatus just outright refuses. Mm. Not at all interested. Um, he's kind of like, well, how am I going to grow my vegetables, for one thing? Um, but also, I've not had a great time. Mm. Uh, this has not been fun. I've just had to tell everybody what to do. Okay, so this, this makes sense to me because, as I said, I think essentially what's happening in our accounts is the same, but it's just happening in a slightly different order because it's at this point after he's you know thrown out the D word <laughs> that there is that agreement struck where the tribunes and the plebeians come to the Senate and they're like, whoa, 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 let's just back the truck up. Beep, <laughs> beep. <laughs> and this is where a deal is struck where the tribunes will drop the whole law about the laws business and the consuls will agree not to lead out the army. So kind of what you were saying in a way about his proposition. But it seems to be a bit more negotiated in my account, uh, you know, in a, in a larger sense, uh, rather than being between Cincinnati or whatever. And it's here that the Senate also say that for the good of the state, all magistrates, including the tribune of the plebs, should be changed every year. Like, you shouldn't hold it for more than a year in a row. Ah. Okay, okay. and the consuls agree to this, but the tribunes don't. Okay, <laughs> so they're at a bit of a sticking point here. And, again, I can understand I can understand why the tribunes are, you know, backing off this idea because we've had, we've had years where we've heard very little from the tribunes and it's probably because they're either too scared or they're in the back pocket of these elites. Um, so I can understand why if you've got some tribunes that have got some, you know, fire in their belly for this law against the laws and you want to keep them in position and you want to keep them gunning for, for that job. So I can understand why they don't want to go along with it and they get reelected. Okay. And the patrici- the patricians are like, well, if they're gonna, then Cincinnatus, how about it? Cincinnatus, of course, turns around and says, do you really want to be on the same level as these pathetic plebeians? I don't think so. So no, no, thank you. You can take your second consulship and shove it. (laughs) I want to be bare-chested in the sun. (laughs) I want to grow wheat. (laughs) Yeah, so 
it's interesting, but I feel like our account's essentially jealous, just the, the way that the story oh, is told. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Because yeah. there is definitely more parallels now that that you've gone through that sort of level of detail. Yeah, yeah. But Dionysius really positions it all as a, a really smooth, flowing thing. Yeah, whereas so, mine's a little bit more chaotic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, they have... He has Cincinnatus sort of reject um, the offer of becoming consul for the second time. Yeah. Um, partly because he wants to make an example of what the tribunes are doing. Right. So he's kind of like, look... He's like, I don't approve of what these tribunes are doing. They've held the position a couple of years in a row now. And he's like, I don't think that's right. And if I was consul Mm. year after year, I would incur the same censure that they're occurring. And I don't want that stain on me personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So in a way, he's doing, in Dionysius' account, he's doing this sort of backhanded insult uh, to the tribunes. Which is much more direct in my account. (laughs) (laughs) Much more direct in yours. But yeah. this is like this subtle sort of thing. And this all allows um, Dionysius to kind of position Cincinnatus as, if not a philosopher king, then getting towards that same sort of level mm. of like having thought about what it means to be in this position of power. Yeah. And having a sense of what is both required of it, but also a criticism of the nature of power itself. Yeah. Not only the position of consulship, but also what is ever happening with this tribune of the plebs. Because it is interesting to consider because at this point in the Republic, even though we have finally made some progress and we're like decades in listeners, at the same time, it is very much still an evolutionary process in the way that this government is set up. And it's going to continue to evolve and change, obviously, as circumstances change. Um, but there is no law and there won't be for a long time to actually, well, I mean, <laughs> look, who I'm talking to, I mean, we've just been talking about the fact that there are no official laws, but there is no, nothing official on the books to say that you can't hold office, you know, like not officially, it's, it's a practice, it's a custom. You know? Yeah, and we've, yeah. Certainly, we've certainly seen consuls hold the consulship on multiple occasions. Totally, yeah. Sometimes consecutive years running. Mm. And why wouldn't that also end up being true for the Tribune of the Plebs? Totally, uh, yeah. It, that hasn't really been worked out. Why would there be limitations on this? If they put themselves forward and they continue to get voted in, yeah. it seems... It's meant to be voted, right? Yeah, it's supposed to be, <laughs> supposed to be votes. Um, they get in, they get in. Mm. And it's, I think, the frustration of those in power, particularly the Senate mm. and maybe the more crusty of the patrician families yeah. being like, this is really grating on our capacity to do exactly as we please. Totally. Yeah. Uh, we really think there should be some term limits here. Mm. And cause it suits us right now. It suits us right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in that sense, Dionysius's narrative, he's using Cincinnatus as a device to sort of symbolize like what is quintessential Roman leadership Mm. from a patrician perspective and it's fixed term limits. Absolutely. And it's uncompromising in Mm. its outlook of what is required from the citizenry in terms of their compliance with the consul. Mm. And it's actually, it's interesting. And this is just off the top of my head. This is not like an academic opinion, but it is interesting that it's uh, from Dionysius that we get this kind of account because of course it's famously Polybius, another Greek historian who sort of, picks up in Dionysus' footsteps, um, who talks about this system of 
well, what he sort of puts it as more or less like checks and balances of the Roman system and the fact that the Romans have this very strange way of governing which borrows from a number of different systems um you know you know you do have involvement of the people but then you do have the elites running things and you know it's it's, it's all these different elements yeah, coming together yeah because polybius famously talks about how having the monarchical element yeah um the oligarchic element yeah. and the democratic element Which is, is the sort of thing yeah, that the, the consuls, the Senate and the people assemblies. Yeah. yeah a yeah. sort of thing that s- makes Rome stand apart. Whereas yeah. traditionally you see nation states or um, city states going through a cycle between one and the other. Exactly. And sort of shifting yeah. through them over time. You don't have like this whole blend happening at once. I think Sparta is really the only place that has a system that's as as complicated in terms of having so many different elements going on at once. <laughs> and certainly, yeah. like, if we think about the dual kingship yeah. um, in Sparta, that's maybe the closest it nearby is, yeah. model that we have for what's yeah. going on in Rome at this period of time. Yeah. But it's pretty clear that they're just trying to work it out. Oh, for and, sure, yeah. Uh, the other part about this problem is that the narrative really positions the plebeians as the low of the low, like the grand sort of swath of the citizens, when realistically it seems like there's good reason to think that what we're seeing here is a high-level resistance between high-achieving plebeian families oh, for sure. and yeah. long-standing patrician families. Yeah, the plebeians are not necessarily the lowest of the low. Like, yeah, yeah, there, not... yeah, there are some poor people in there, as we keep saying, but then... They're not the most disenfranchised people living in Rome. No, because if you're called up in a military levy, you still have to provide your own equipment. Yeah. Um, Depending on how much equipment you can provide for yourself will depend on where you end up in that army. Completely. Uh, But a lot of these people are not just sufficient, but actually becoming quite wealthy as Rome continues to go out and engage in military activity. So we've got this increasing like old elite versus new elite. And this is their frustration about their lack of transparency of the system and their lack of representation in this system. Um, you've got this real stranglehold yeah, and on so, the system with the patricians. Of yeah. course, it makes sense to keep pushing in Tribune Absolutely. of the Plebs, yes. who seem to be really pushing for some change yes. and some transparency. Well, that's what Thank you, want, you very it? much. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, I think that finally takes me to the end of my 460 account, Dr. G. How about you? The end of 460. We did it. <laughs> we did it. Well, that means, Dr. G, that it is time for... <laughs> Oh my god. This is where we measure up Rome's progress every week by looking at some categories and awarding them a rating out of 10 golden eagles. There are five categories, meaning Rome has the potential to score 50 golden eagles. Yeah, alright, so what's our first category, Dr. G? Military clout. Huh, okay, well... Uh, uncharacteristically, there isn't a lot of... <laughs> I mean, they did just defeat some people, but it was in the previous episode, so... And they were invading them. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I don't think I can count. It's a big fat zero, really. Yeah. Okay, so nothing for military clout. What's our next category? Diplomacy. Okay. There is definitely some internal diplomacy there going is. on here. Yeah. There is. Uh, Although having a console who's basically like, you're doing it my way or we're not doing it at all. Well, it doesn't seem that diplomatic. That's in your account. In mine, there seems to be a little bit more of a bigger conversation going on. I mean, it's not great, but the Senate seems to be involved, the tribunes are involved, the planes are involved. It's various stages. Mm. Um, yes, Cincinnatus is trying to force his way, but 
there's an agreement struck of sorts. Okay. <laughs> it's not really good for anybody. I mean, the consuls don't get an army and the plebeians don't get to talk about the law about the laws, but hey. I'm going to give it maybe a three at best. <laughs> yeah, look, it's not much. In fact, I'd even go as low as a two, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. I'll give it a three. I'll give it a three. All right. All right, what's our next category? Expansion. Nope. <laughs> nope, that's a big fact zero. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, Weirtus. Okay. There is a lot of Weirtus going on. Yeah, Weirtus factor off the charts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mostly radiating from that hot silver fox, Cincinnati. Oh, he can take his toga off anytime. <laughs> and he does. And to he farm. does. In order to plow his own field. Yeah. <laughs> mm. All right, so what do we give him for this? Uh, I mean, that's actually, one citizen out of the whole population. <laughs> I'm actually surprised that we really haven't talked about Gaius Claudius, like, at all. Well, you know, he's a bit boring. Yeah. Claudius. <laughs> I mean, he yeah. holds up traditional weirdos by just being so patrician. True, true. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm guessing maybe about a six or seven. I think it has to be a seven. I mean, let's face it, Dr. G, can you get more room in this Cincinnatus <laughs> right now? I don't think you can. No, but it's only because I'd actually give him personally a 10 out of 10. It's just that he seems to be the only Yeah, one. nobody else is keeping up with him. He's yeah. like streaks ahead. <laughs> exactly. All right, final category. The citizen score. Okay, now it might seem bleak at first <laughs> because obviously having Cincinnatus and, and Claudius in power, not good times for the Plebeians, and they don't really gain anything much, but they do get to avoid going and camping in winter. This is true. Yeah. And all they had to do was agree to not complain about something which is clearly in their favour. Well, true. <laughs> but they do that a lot anyway. So. Uh, oh, citizens. I feel like maybe a, I, I mean, a it's three? Not, it's not the worst time to be a citizen. Yeah. Clearly they're, they're mostly not dying. And they're also being represented. I mean, again, yes. this, we, we can't emphasize enough that it is really important that the tribunes do their job. Yeah, the representation is happening and yeah. the patricians do not like it. So yeah. I think that must be like a four or five. Okay, I'm going to say a four because, you know, not a lot of other stuff get happening. <laughs> Which means, Dr. G, that we're at a grand total of 14 out of 50. That is a big fail, Rome. <laughs> a big fail. This is tough. Well, you know, I, we do tend to find that episodes where there's not a lot of warfare, they don't do as well. So, you know. And <laughs> in a way, true. I see that as a win. Yes, yes. Yeah. I would support less warfare. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us to talk all things Cincinnatus, listeners. Oh, yes. And stay tuned. I don't think Cincinnatus is done yet. Oh, not by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs>